here is what the world calls wisdom. Okay, according to the world, you need to be driven. Okay, you need to have more ambition and more drive than the next guy. Do you want to get ahead? Work harder than they do. Study more than they do. Get up earlier than they do. Stay later than they do. Okay, success is defined by how much you can get done. Okay, success is defined by going out and taking that better job, taking that bigger house, or taking that fancier car, because the world isn't going to give it to you. You have to take it. Okay, carpe diem. Okay, so when you see the car that you want driving down the street, you need to let that motivate you to outwork everyone around you. All right, so the primary qualities that will lead you to success, okay, go to that next slide, okay, the qualities of success or wisdom, okay, it's the desire to have what people ahead of you have, okay, and it's the unrelenting ambition to get yourself to the next level. Okay, we talk a great deal about how our modern idols are not made out of stone or metal, but instead we worship other things which are much more sophisticated than those ancient people long ago, right? Okay, we worship things like money or sex or power or whatever your thing is, and that'll be your idol. Okay, but what I want to talk to us about this morning is another idol, which I think is an even bigger threat than those things for the modern American church. I think there's a more insidious idol than the ones that we often talk about in church. I think part of the reason that we have absolutely no theology of Sabbath whatsoever is because of this idol. I think part of the reason that most of us who are here this morning are tired and that we wear our exhaustion like a badge of honor is because of this idol. I think part of the reason that we struggle to get a higher percentage of our people to come to Bible classes or come to worship services or be more involved at GCC is because of this idol. I think this is the idol that's killing us. All right, there's a couple of things that are dangerous about this worldview, about this particular idol. Okay, in the first place, there are some good things in there which can blind us to the negatives. In other words, Satan, I think, is really good at putting just enough truth in something to make the whole thing look good to us. Okay, and that's where the danger lies, right? Because we see the piece of truth and then we ignore the rest of the bigger lie. Okay, for instance, the Bible tells us not to be lazy, right? We should work hard. We should want to get things done. We should want to provide for our families. Okay, but then what we do is we let that driving force, that, that w- is what we define as success, to be our entire life, and that's not okay. In fact, James calls it sin. Okay, I think the primary problem with this kind of worldview that we have on the screen behind me is that you can very easily do this without any character at all. Okay, I can have my big idol of desire and ambition be my God, And I can be completely self-centered. I can have drive and ambition without ever having an ounce of humility. After all, I'm the one getting myself ahead in life, right? Also by its very nature, this can easily lead me to only caring about other people insofar as you help me get to the goal that I want to get to. Right? If my life is defined by my drive, by my ambition, by the things that I want to accomplish then you are merely a tool to help me get what I want. Right? 
there's no room in this for service. You know, I will go so far as to say that if these qualities of desire, okay, which by the way, there's a biblical word for that. James is going to call it envy, right? If envy and ambition are the chief virtues of my life, then they will inevitably lead to conflict, okay? Because if you're in my way of what I want, then I've got to get over you to get there, okay? I've got to take other people down. I've got to do whatever I have to do to get where I want to get to. These two twin things of ambition and envy will lead me to whatever other sins I need to justify to get ahead, And yet what we do in our modern world, in our cultures, we call this wisdom, okay? Whoever is the most ambitious person, whoever really goes out and takes what they want, that's what we call wisdom, and then we brag about it. All right, this time I want to show you, it's a one-minute clip from a movie I saw recently that I thought was a really good movie, okay? One of the people that we have upheld in American culture is someone who did it and did it well, okay? And there's a movie recently called The Founder. Uh, which is on Netflix. If you haven't seen it, I encourage you to go watch it. It's a really good movie talking about how the guy that really got McDonald's going did it. Okay, and it's an amazing story. I want to show you just a one-minute clip from that film because I think it sums this up perfectly. Go ahead and show that. Now, I know what you're thinking. How the heck does a 52-year-old over-the-hill milkshake machine salesman build a fast food empire with 1,600 restaurants in 50 states, five foreign countries, with an annual revenue of in the neighborhood of $700 million? One word. Persistence. Nothing in this world can take the place of good old persistence. Talent won't. Nothing's more common than unsuccessful men with talent. Genius won't. Unrecognized genius is practically a cliche. Education won't. Why, the world is full of educated fools. Persistence and determination alone are all powerful. It's the story of a man who knew what he wanted, did whatever he needed to do to get it. He was the most ambitious person. He was the hardest working person. And ultimately, he got exactly what he wanted. And yet, he caused nothing but hurt and suffering to the people around him. Okay? And yet, this is what we uphold in our world as wisdom. Okay? I think this is our idol. Our idol is unbridled ambition and envy. I think most of us in our just conversations with each other, our everyday conversations, we compare who's busier, right? Who's got more stuff on their agenda? And if I can prove to you that I'm more tired than you are, then I win, okay? Um, I would argue that I lose, (laughs) all right? I think the Bible teaches very clearly uh, that God is much more interested in who you are than he is interested in how much stuff you get done, and yet we reverse that every time. And it's killing us. Fair enough? All right, hear the word of the Lord from James chapter 3, in which he tells us that this pain and suffering is inevitable if we get this wrong concept of wisdom. He says, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. 
But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such, quote-unquote, wisdom does not come from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. Okay, James, tell us what you really think, right? He says, for where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. Okay, so do you want to have some ambition? Fine. All of us want to make progress in our lives. All of us want to feel like we are accomplishing some things as we go about our day. You should work hard, right? The Bible says we should not be lazy. We should work and we should work well. Okay, also it is part of life that we will want some things, right? It's quite natural that you want to take care of your family and you want to provide good schools and a house and all of those things. Okay, but James tells us that when envy and ambition run our lives, when we are doing what our culture would call wisdom, okay, when we are the most driven people, when we never slow down, okay, when we think that our worth is found in how much we can accomplish, it is not wisdom in any sense of the word, it is selfishness. In fact, he doesn't pull any punches, he calls it demonic, and warns us, this will lead you to every evil practice. This is not wisdom, it's suicide. Okay, and I don't think we have to look very far in our own culture to see how envy and ambition cause nothing but hurt and heartache all around us, even in our own lives. Okay, we can accomplish a lot of stuff. We can accumulate a lot of stuff and then turn around and see the wake of destruction behind us. Okay, so what do we do? Okay, how do we buck the trend of our culture around us, not embrace this so-called wisdom of the world, and instead do something much more godly, be the people that God wants us to be? Okay, and James tells us wisdom and true success are not about being the most driven person. Wisdom and true success is about developing character. Okay, notice what he tells us instead. Verse 17. He says, But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. All right, so I want to be wise. Okay, and I want to be wise in the ways of God, not in the standards of this world. Okay, I desire righteousness, not success by the way the world defines it. And so James, in this text, he lists several characteristics in kind of a bullet point fashion, saying you really want to be successful, you really want to have true wisdom that will take you somewhere. It doesn't look like this unbridled ambition and envy. Instead, it's all these godly characteristics. Okay, and we're not going to talk about all of them, uh, but I've picked out a few of these things that I do want to talk about. I've left you some room if you're writing this down on the front of your bulletin. That's right. What are the real characteristics of godly wisdom? Okay, I think it's interesting he starts by saying the first characteristic is that godly wisdom is pure. You know, typically when we think of the word purity, uh, we think of sex. Right? This is something Titus needs to teach the teens. Uh, maybe we need a reminder as adults not to cheat on our spouses. Okay? But mostly when we think about purity, we think about sexual purity. Okay? And while sexual purity is certainly important, uh, that is not what James is talking about when he calls wisdom pure. Okay? James says this is about purity of character. This is purity of motives. Okay? Here's what I mean. 
All right, let's imagine um, that you're coming off of 316, getting off by Gwinnett Hospital, um, and you see the person that's often standing there asking for money on the side of the road. You ever been there and you've seen the guy panhandling right at that intersection? There's a light. It's apparently a good spot where you can catch drivers that are kind of stuck there for a few minutes, and you can stare down their window and make them feel guilty, hoping that you'll roll down your window and give some money to the guy panhandling on the side of the road, right? You ever seen a panhandler before? Is anyone awake? Okay, all right. So you see someone panhandling for money, and so you grab some change and you put it in his cup. Okay, why did you do that? Okay, maybe you did it because you really have a heart for the poor, and you really want to alleviate the suffering in this world, and you love people, and you wanted to help this guy out, and so you give him some change in his cup. Okay, that's one reason you might do that. Another reason is maybe you have a passenger in the car with you, right? And I don't want my passenger to think that I'm stingy. Right? I don't want my passenger to think ill of me. I want the passenger sitting in the car with me to think that I'm a righteous person. So when I see the person asking for money, okay, I'll roll down the window and I'll put some change in this cup because I want this other person to think certain things about who I am and think that I am holy and righteous, Okay, maybe another reason I might roll down my window and give is because can you believe it? The preacher preached just last Sunday about being generous, and now I know if I don't put money in his cup, I'm going to drive away from here and feel really guilty, and I know that the best way to keep me from feeling guilty is if I just roll down the window, give him some change, then I can be on my way. Maybe the reason I give money to this guy is because I didn't really like the look in his eye. I'm worried if I don't give him something, maybe he'll key my car or he'll do something, throw something at me. I don't know, but I want him out of my life. So the fastest way to get him out of my life is to roll down the window, put some change in his cup, and then we can all go our different ways. Okay, there's a lot of reasons you might decide to give the guy some change. Okay, but what am I going to tell myself after I give him change was my real motivation? Well, I'm just righteous and love people, right? We are very good at lying to ourselves about our motivations for why we do things, okay, even good things. We tell ourselves we are acting for righteousness' sake when often we are motivated by selfishness or fear, by a desire to get what we want, by guilt, by any other number of possible things. And when James says godly wisdom is pure, what he's saying is your motives for doing what's right is for the right reason. Okay, the way that we know if we've really gained maturity, if we've really gotten to a level where we could call ourselves wise, is if the reason we are doing righteousness, the reason we are living the way that God has designed us to live, is because we have a purity of character and a purity of motivation. Okay, this gets back to when Jesus was talking in the Sermon on the Mount. You remember he says stuff like, you have heard it said, but I tell you, right? He says like, you've heard it said, thou shalt not kill, which, yeah, that's pretty good. Don't kill anybody. Okay, but I tell you, don't even be angry with your brother, right? He says, you really want to follow God? It's not just about following a rule. It's about having a heart that longs for godly things. Okay, that's purity. We are pure. We are wise when our motivation for what we do is pure. Okay, godly wisdom is first of all pure. All right, secondly, he says godly wisdom is considerate. 
Right? And like with purity, I think what we've done is we've taken this powerful word and we've reduced its meaning down to something that doesn't really challenge us like it should. Okay, when we think of considerate, we think of being polite. Right? I want my sons to learn how to be considerate. I try to teach them to say yes sir and yes ma'am. In fact, constantly whenever they talk back to me, I say no, I think you mispronounced yes sir. Right? Why? I'm trying to teach them to be polite. I want to teach them to open the door for women and all that. I know that's sexist, but I still think it's appropriate, right? Okay, I want to teach my sons their social graces. I want my sons to be polite. All right, but that is not what James means when he says considerate. Okay, to be considerate is much more than being polite. It is someone who considers others before themselves. Okay, quite literally, the word considerate means to be someone who is thinking. Okay, to consider means to think. So a person who's full of consideration means I'm constantly thinking more about the other person. Okay, this is far beyond just being polite. Okay, so what this looks like practically is that you don't show partiality to people based on what they can do for you. Okay, this, again, gets back to the teaching of Jesus, right? He says you really want to be godly, treat other people the way you want to be treated. Okay, if you're in a position of authority, you don't use it for yourself, but you consider how to serve other people. And if we really think about it, this is a very rare quality. Most people are not really considerate. Most of the time, what we are doing as we interact with other people is we are thinking primarily about ourselves, right? In a conversation, I'm not primarily listening to you. I'm thinking about what I'm going to say next, right? In an interaction with others, I'm thinking, what can you do for me? I'm thinking, how do I need to treat you so that I can get what I want? Godly wisdom doesn't do that. Godly wisdom is servant wisdom. I'm interacting with you, listening fully. I'm thinking, what can I do for you? How can I be here fully for you? And I'm not thinking primarily about me. Fair enough? This is not just saying yes sir, yes ma'am. Right? Okay. Number three, and our favorite one, is he says, godly wisdom is submissive. Okay, which has got to be our favorite word, right? Okay, how many of you like having people in authority over you telling you what to do? I know that's not true, son. Okay. I know that's wrong. You know, one of the most common fantasies uh, that people have is the lottery fantasy, right? Okay, imagine that I wake up and I just won the Mega Millions lottery. Okay, how would that change my life? Right? How would I keep my wife from spending all of it? Right? And there's a lot of things you have to think about. Okay? Think about the car you would drive, the house you would own, all of these things. They all sound great. Okay, but honestly, the peace that most people dream about more than any other when they have the lottery fantasy, the thing that they envision the most is getting to walk into their boss's office and tell them, I'm done. Okay? That's the peace. More than the house and the cars and everything else, the most common fantasy people have when thinking about winning the lottery is being able to tell their boss, I don't work for you anymore. You no longer get to tell me what to do. We fantasize about not having to be submissive. We really want to be in charge. You know, just the other day, Sam started telling all of us in the room what to do. 
Okay, which is not an uncommon thing. He often thinks he's in charge. Okay, but he was saying, Dad, you're going to go do this, and Mom, you're going to go do this, and then Luke, you're going to go do this. And I said, Sam, who's in charge? And he said, Daddy, I'm just pretending that I'm in charge. I said, okay. It starts early. Okay, but honestly, when James writes this, he's not talking about what we usually think of as submissive. Okay, this is not him telling us to be easily swayed or be subservient to everyone. Okay, developing true wisdom doesn't mean that you lose your backbone. Okay, what submission, though, has to do with wisdom is that as Christians, we should already be comfortable with the idea that we're not in charge. Okay, we should already be comfortable with the idea that we don't know everything. Right? After all, we start with the idea that there is one I am and you're not it. Right? We should be able as submissive people to see how God can use all kinds of circumstances and people around us to teach us. Okay, I'm in authority over my sons and yet I should be able to see how God can use them to teach me things. Okay, if I'm arrogant, I won't learn it. But if I can be humble, if I can be submissive, God can teach me a lot. Okay, when I'm interacting with people who are older and wiser than I am, can I be submissive and learn from them? Okay, when I'm interacting with people younger than I am, can I be submissive and learn from them? Titus, that doesn't count with you. That's totally a separate issue, okay? Right, when I'm interacting with people who are socially beneath me as society sees it, am I humble enough to learn from them as well? I think submission in this context is really the opposite of arrogance. Okay, if I don't listen well, I'm not really submitting to the other person in a conversation. Okay, if I have to get my way about things when I'm working with a team, then I don't understand submission and I won't be able to grow in wisdom. I guarantee you, the most kind people that you know, the most mature people that you know, the best listeners that you know, the people who have more influence than everybody else around you truly understand what it means to be fully present in conversation and submit to whoever they're dealing with. If you can't learn from everybody around you, you don't have the submission thing down. Does that make sense? Are we able to lay down our pride long enough to say, okay, I'm willing to take the one down position in all my interactions so that I can truly grow in wisdom? Godly wisdom is submissive. All right. Uh, Number four, he also says that godly wisdom is full of mercy and good fruit. And I think these go together. I think these have to go together. Uh, you know those commercials that Sarah McLaughlin does for the animal shelters, right? And she sings a really sad song, and they show you this whole stream of pictures of all of these suffering animals. Uh, you ever been up too late at night and seen that infomercial, right? Okay, and it's, it's begging you to give money to the animal shelters, okay? If you've ever watched that commercial and not had it hit you right in the heart, uh, then you don't have any feelings, Okay? I mean, she's laying it on pretty thick there, really. Okay? Um, now, I see that commercial, and I think, man, those poor animals, that's really terrible. Okay? And then I change the channel and watch something else, right? Okay? And all the time that I've ever seen those commercials, I've never once given to her cause. But what do I do? I think, well, since that really hit me in the heart, and since I really felt something, that means I'm a really merciful person, Right? 
And what we do is in situations like that or when we hear about other things going on in the world and all of these other good works that we need to be involved in and all of this stuff, a lot of times what we do is we feel really bad for those people or we feel really bad for this event. And we have a lot of merciful feelings in our soul and we think, well, that means I'm a merciful person. But you notice what James does. He doesn't just say godly wisdom has feelings of great mercy. What he does is he says godly wisdom has feelings of great mercy coupled with what? Good fruit. Right? I can have all these merciful feelings in my soul all day long, but if that doesn't lead me to any kind of merciful action, then I don't really understand mercy. I think is the point James is making. Is that fair? Godly wisdom doesn't just feel bad. It actually does stuff. Our actions, the fruit of our lives, have to line up with our mercy if we want to claim true wisdom. Fair enough? All right. And finally, number five, uh, he says it is impartial and sincere. Uh, these two words are very closely related. Basically, he means without hypocrisy. Okay, nobody likes a hypocrite. Uh, the fastest thing that will kill your ministry is if people around you perceive that you are a hypocrite. Okay? We need to be consistent in who we are. We need to practice what we preach. Uh, we need to be Jesus to everybody. Right, James tells us true wisdom is not about being the most driven person. Okay, true wisdom is about developing character. We have to get rid of those idols of ambition and envy. I think we have to quit judging our lives by how much stuff we get done or how many activities we're involved in. Do you want more peace in your life? Then spend more time on purity and consideration and submissiveness. Okay, at the end of the day, God is not going to be impressed by your overflowing calendar. Okay, God's not going to be impressed when you get to heaven and say, man, Lord, I'm tired. Let me tell you, I'm more tired than the next guy because I worked harder than he did. Okay, God's not going to be impressed with that. All right, what's it about? It's about developing character. It's about caring about other people. It's about being the kind of person that God desires. God says, you really want to be pleasing to God, then be still and know that I am God, right? It's not be as busy as you can possibly be, okay? With the Israelites, God specifically told them there's going to be one day a week where you're not going to do anything just to remind you that it's not about how much stuff you get done. It's about who you are in relationship to me, okay? I think we've lost that by not practicing Sabbath, and we need to reclaim that principle of letting God be God. There's one Messiah for the world, and it's not me, Right? What does it look like for me to rest in the presence of God Almighty? All right, at this time in our service, we're going to sing a few verses of invitation song. Uh, during the singing of this song, I will be down front. One of our shepherds will be down front. And this is a time where we as the church want to be here for you. If you have a special need, a prayer request, something you'd like to talk about uh, with us, if you'd like to study God's word with us, whatever it is, we would love as the church to be here for you during this song. Uh, before we sing it, though, I'd like to close this with a word of blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. May the Lord be gracious to you and give you peace. Let's stand and sing.